we've been in this, this series, Shape of the Liturgy. We've been asking these questions over and over and over. How is the liturgy shaped and how is the liturgy shaping us? And today we get to this last element and we're going to notice three things. First, we are going to notice that Christ really is King. He is Lord over all of our lives and every area of our lives as we head out of this place. Secondly, we're going to notice that our King has a mission a mission that he's invited us to join him in. And finally, living under the lordship of Christ and living on mission with Christ is the pathway to fullness of joy. So if you have a Bible with you, open up to Matthew 28, 16 through 20, a really famous passage, what's often called the Great Commission. It's Jesus' own sending liturgy, his sending of his disciples. And we're going to see those three things. Jesus is king Jesus has a mission he invites us to join him in, and he wants us to be full of joy as he is with us always. So Matthew 28, beginning in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the sending liturgy really doesn't actually begin with the words at the back of the room. It actually begins with the final movement of the cross from on stage, down among us, and then out to the back of the room. And I know that Tim did a whole sermon on the movements of the cross, but we just can't divorce that final movement of the cross from what we're trying to accomplish in the sending. You see, the movement of the cross there is reminding us that Christ doesn't just reign up here on stage. He doesn't just reign in this room. Jesus isn't just king of the church, king of this gathered people. His cross goes out ahead of us to remind us that he is king everywhere we go from here. His cross goes out ahead. He goes out ahead reminding us that he is Lord and king of every area of our lives. No exception. That's what we're being reminded of. We're being reminded what Jesus first says to his disciples. All authority in heaven and earth has been given To me, Jesus is king. Ephesians 1 teaches a similar message. After the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the grave, it says that the Father seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Can it get more comprehensive than that? Colossians 2.10 says a very similar message. Philippians 2, the famous emptying of Christ and then exaltation of Christ at the right hand of the Father. Pretty much the entire book of Revelation, we could go to passage after passage teaching us that Christ is not just king of the church. He is king of the universe, king of everything. He is Lord of every area of our lives. So, do we believe it? Do we believe Jesus when he says that all authority has been given to him? And do we live like it's true? This summer, the men's group that Brian Craig leads was going through a book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And uh, more men should be in that group. More men should hang out with Brian. Brian, raise your hand. 
Uh, if you're a man in, the, man in the church, join us for prayer, for spiritual formation on Thursday mornings. That's an awesome group. But this summer, as we're reading this book by Carl Truman, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, it would have been really easy to, to just look outside. Because the purpose of that book is to just explain our cultural moment and really the redefinition of sexuality and gender identity. And so it would have been really easy to just say, hey, there's issues out there in the world and we're going to examine them. But Brian did a really good thing. He challenged all of us to constantly be looking at ourselves. How does this book actually describe me? Because the reality is everything that Truman's book describes also describes me in my temptations, my proclivities, my sinful desires. And so it wasn't just a book where we get to, you know, throw stones. We had to challenge ourselves. And in the first part of Truman's book, he really examines a philosophy of selfhood, and he makes the case that the defining characteristic of our time, modernity and post-modernity alike, is that we understand ourselves through psychological categories. That I fundamentally understand who I am and make meaning of my world based on only things that are interior to me. Based on my inner feelings, my inner desires. That's what Charles Taylor calls expressive individualism. And it's really the rule and reign not of someone else outside of me, not the Lord Christ, but the rule and reign of my desires, my appetites, whatever I want, my self-actualization. And so if there's a person in this room that thinks that's not a temptation they struggle with, you're wrong. It's every one of us. That is what it means to be a modern person. We fundamentally view the world through our inner desires, our inner choices, our inner sense of self. And the movement of the cross is meant to challenge us. It reminds us that the very first sin, Adam and Eve, what did they do? They said to God, we know that you're king. We know that you rule over all, but we think actually it'd be better if we were king and queen of our own universe. We're going to go our own way, make our own decisions. It's the original sin. The only thing new about it that Truman describes is how essentially our culture has baptized it, blessed it, called it empowerment and mental health to only live based on your strongest appetites. So when the cross moves, that final movement, you are meant to be challenged You are meant to recognize that the cross of Christ goes ahead of you and rules in every area of your life. You need to figure out, am I living under the lordship of Christ? Do I live under Jesus' rule and reign or under the rule and reign of my own appetites, my own desires, my own internal sense of self? And I can't answer that question for you. Each of you need to wrestle with that. Whose reign and rule am I living under? But I can suggest a few areas that are common stumbling blocks. They're certainly common areas of stumbling for me. First, what is your relationship with money? How do you view your income? Is your income purely your money to be dispersed at your pleasure? Or do you understand your money that all of it is ultimately God's? Have you ever viewed your spending habits your saving habits, your budget, and just ask yourself the question, what do these numbers communicate about what I value? What do these numbers communicate about what really rules my life? The rulership, the lordship of Christ over you ought to cause you to rethink the way you spend, the way you save, the way you give, the way you generously bless others with your money. If you haven't thought deeply about your money recently, ask yourself, am I really living under the lordship of Christ in my finances? 
How about time? Whose time is it? Is your time strictly yours? Who gets it? Does your time itself belong to the Lord? How do you spend your free time? How do you spend your leisure time? How much do you work? How much do you play? How much do you spend time with family? What are you prioritizing in your calendar, in your schedule? Is missing church regularly just fine because your personal choices, your personal use of time is more valuable to you? What is valuable in your time? Is Jesus really the Lord of your time? And finally, is Jesus the Lord of the direction of your life? What are your goals? What are you pursuing? What are you going after in your life? What do you want? What are the things that give you significance and meaning? Is it accomplishments at work? Is it the success and health of your family? How do you make decisions? Is it to please the Lord or do you make decisions to please yourself? What goals are you going after? The Lordship of Christ ought to have an impact on the things that you live for, that get you out of bed every day. Is Jesus really the Lord of every area of your life? All of us can grow. This is what the cross ought to be reminding us of of every week. As it goes out from this place, Jesus goes ahead of us, ruling in every nook and cranny, every last area of our lives. Will we bend the knee, submit to him, follow his rule and reign? Notice that when Adam and Eve sinned, when they rejected God's rule and reign, they invited destruction and curse and death into the world and into their own lives. The rule of Christ is for our good. Do we want to live under it? But the dismissal is obviously not just about Christ's rule and reign. In fact, we haven't even gotten to the words of the dismissal yet. But that's what the cross is doing, is it moves out of this place, reminding us of Christ's rule. But then Christ tells us that he has a mission that he invites us to join him in. In Matthew 28, back in verse 19, he says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus has a mission that he invites us to join him in. The sending liturgy, the dismissal that we've been using recently is, church, go forth in the name of Christ. We're being reminded each week that we go forth from this place as representatives of Christ. We go forth on this mission that Jesus has invited us into. The words are also meant to remind us of 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 to 20. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Christ has a mission. Our God has a mission to reconcile the world to himself. And he sends us out as ambassadors, sends us out as disciple makers. And there are a couple errors that we could make in a a theology of mission, missiology. On the one hand, we could say, 
Well, God has given us a task and we need to do it and, and build up a lot of pressure. What if, what if we fail? What if we fall short? And we need to remind ourselves that first and foremost, this is God's mission. God's going to do it. And he's invited us to partner with him, to be ambassadors for him. But he is going to accomplish this mission. This is what's often described as the Missio Dei, the mission of God, as opposed to thinking about it as the Missio Ecclesia, the mission of the church. This is God's mission. But on the other hand, the way we can fall off the track, fall into the ditch on the other side, is since we have such a lofty view of God's mission, we can actually miss the content of it. This is often what the liberal church has done. The mission of God is the renewal of all things. That's true. That's the book of Revelation. That was what our collect was today that Tim prayed. But if it's so vague, the renewal of all things is just, well, God's mission is inclusion. God's mission is political activism. God's mission is social justice. That's not the content of the mission. And I'm not saying those are bad things. I'm not saying that we shouldn't in any way pursue social justice, shouldn't pursue mercy, shouldn't pursue compassion. But the big thing that's missing in this missiology, this theology of mission, is it's not Christocentric and it's not Trinitarian. It misses the whole content of what God is doing. What does 2 Corinthians 5 say God is doing? How does he renew all things? By reconciling sinners to himself in Jesus Christ. Social justice is good, and it can be done without mentioning Jesus at all. All these other things can be done, and they can have nothing to do with Christ. And we need to remember that God's mission is Christocentric and Trinitarian. 1 John 4.14 puts it simply. We have seen that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. What is God doing? Redeeming the world, renewing all things through the salvation in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Through Him. And so how can we say that we're on mission with God if our mission has nothing to do with the sending Father? The Son who is sent and in turn sends the Spirit into the world and sends us to proclaim His name and make disciples. How can we say we're on mission if we say nothing about Christ, who is the apex and the center of God's mission in the world? Fundamentally, God's mission is salvation in the name of Christ, and that means we need to proclaim the gospel. We need to preach. This is the importance of our reading Romans 10 today. We need to go and not just do good deeds, absolutely. We need to go and do justice and mercy. It's commanded of us in Scripture, absolutely. And we need to preach the name of Christ. Because how does God actually renew the world? Through His Son. We need to go. People need to hear the name of Jesus. They need to believe on Him for salvation alone. That's our call. And I want to remind you, this gospel proclamation is not just for people with collars. It's for all of us. Every disciple is sent to make more disciples. To preach the name of Jesus as the only name under heaven by which we can be saved. That is all of our mission. We all must go and proclaim Jesus as our Savior from sin, death, and hell. And just to be fair, I know I've critiqued kind of the liberal or left-leaning missiology. Well, People on the right miss the gospel all the time. The conservative church all the time misses the true gospel. In fact, if you think point one today, the lordship of Christ is the gospel, well, you've missed it. 
The lordship of Christ is not the gospel. The lordship of Christ is a consequence of the gospel. I serve my Lord because he has saved me. The gospel is not my performance. It's his performance. Here's what Tim Keller had to say about missing the gospel, both on the left and the right. People who believe they are accepted by God because they're leading a traditionally moral, chaste, and good life, or because they're living a life of sacrificial service for the needs of the world, will be equally insecure, unable to take criticism, prone to look down on people who are not getting it right, and unsure of God's love or of their identity in Christ. Both are still essentially enslaved to the bonds of works righteousness. It doesn't matter if it takes a traditional conservative moralistic form or a culturally progressive justice-oriented kingdom restoration form. We can miss the gospel on both sides. We can miss the mission of God on both sides. If you think what saves you is being a really good person, meeting the needs of the world, being active in social justice, you've missed it. If you think what saves you is being really good, being morally pure, doing all the right things, checking the box, coming to church, you've missed it. Neither save you, neither are the gospel. The gospel is not your performance. It's Christ's performance for you. The the gospel is not obedience unto Christ for salvation. It is Christ as my obedience and salvation. It is not putting myself under the lordship of Christ to be saved, but because he has saved me, I put myself under the lordship of Christ. That's the gospel. Romans 6.23 reminds us that the wages of sin are death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Catch that. Wages for our behavior, for our actions, that's what we get for our sin. But the free gift is not wages. It's just that, free, freely given, freely given in grace. And that brings us to our final point. If the gospel that we are called to proclaim, that we live from, is one of free grace given to needy, desperate sinners, then that means we get to go forth under the lordship of Christ, on mission proclaiming the name of Christ in fullness of joy. Perhaps the most joyous part of our entire worship together is the final words we declare together. We say, Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. And the kids usually just scream. And it's awesome. And if you've actually been to another Anglican church besides Wellspring, you might have been totally alone in that last Alleluia and felt awkward because it's not actually a part of the liturgy. We insert that third Alleluia in there because we want to accentuate the fullness of joy that we have as we live under Christ's lordship and on mission with him. Jesus himself in his own sending has a beautiful message of joy for his disciples. Verse 20, he says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And at first, that might not seem like a joyous statement as much as a comforting statement. But if you've been reading Michael Hendricks' book, The Other Half of Church, with us this fall, you probably already know where I'm going. Michael Hendricks' book, one of the the big takeaways that he gives us is that joy is fundamentally a relational dynamic. Happiness is based on circumstances. So I can be happy alone because I have in good circumstances. But joy is fundamentally about my relationships. 
If my people love me and are delighted to be with me, then I experience joy. And Jesus is giving his disciples joy by saying, I want to be with you. Hendrick's definition of joy is just that. I want to be with you. Jesus is emphatically saying to his disciples, I always want to be with you. I will always be with you because you are my joy and my delight. That's the message Jesus is giving his disciples. And it's unilateral. It's unconditional. It's not going away. He says always to the end of the age. Many of you know that Megan and I grew up in families of divorce. And so when we started dating, there was a lot of nervousness because both of us had seen a covenant partner who said, I actually don't want to be with you anymore. We'd seen that pain. And so we dated for five years before we got married because there was this constant limbo, this constant back and forth of like, man, I really want to be committed to you and I'm scared and I'm constantly self-protecting and kind of pushing you away a little bit. And so when we finally got over that fear and, and got married and made this lifelong covenant commitment to one another, we experienced something amazing. We experienced freedom from fear, freedom from anxiety, freedom in the, in the decision to say, I always choose you. I will always be with you. And we don't always do it perfect. We don't always love each other as we ought but we've been experiencing so much healing and growth in our marriage as we realize we get to choose each other every day. Every day we get to make this covenant renewal and get to say, I choose you. I will always be with you, no matter what. And so this earthly covenant in God's redemptive plan has been a ministry to us to remind us of God's unfailing, unilateral covenant commitment to us. Jesus does not say to his disciples, I will be with you always unless you fail me. Jesus does not say, I will be with you always if you're really obedient and a good servant to me as your Lord. Jesus says, without condition, without qualification, I will be with you always to the end of the age. And you need to know that that is God's covenant commitment to you. The best example of this in scripture is Genesis 15. God makes a promise to Abraham. He says to Abraham that he will bless the whole world through his offspring. And he invites him into a covenant ceremony. And so Abraham brings a young cow and a goat and a ram. And he cuts these animals in half. And orchestrates the body parts across from each other. So that they're going to walk through these animal pieces. Kind of gruesome. But the the meaning of this in the ancient world was that two partners would walk through these animals together and say, may it be done to me if I fail to keep my promise to you. That was the significance, the intensity of this covenant. And then something amazing happened. A heavy sleep fell on Abraham. God puts Abraham to sleep and God walks through the covenant pieces alone. God walks through these pieces by himself, declaring for all time that his covenant is unconditional, has nothing to do with Abraham's faithfulness, has nothing to do with Abraham's behavior, has nothing to do with anything that his children do. God will not break his covenant. And here's the most amazing piece. Not only does God keep his covenant promise 
by blessing the world in Jesus Christ, the offspring of Abraham. But he also takes the punishment of covenant breakers. Jesus on the cross is the one who was torn to pieces as though he broke the promise. Jesus' gruesome death on Calvary was evidence that somehow he was the covenant breaker. So in Christ, God has fulfilled his covenant to us perfectly. And he has paid the penalty for covenant breaking. So in every way that we fail, it is covered. And in every way we should have obeyed God, he has fulfilled for us. God's promise is unconditional, unilateral. In Christ, you can be confident. God will never leave you. He will never forsake you. His covenant never fails. It never ends. So when Jesus says to his disciples, I will be with you always, he means it. When he says to you that he will be with you always as you go out into the world under his lordship and on mission with him, you can be confident that he is saying always. He loves you. You are his joy. You are his delight. In him, the Father's face shines on you everywhere you go. So Trinity, as you leave this place today, go under the rule and reign of Christ. Go on a mission to proclaim salvation in Jesus' name and go in joy because Jesus delights in you forever and always. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is an absolute delight and joy to come together to worship your name, to honor you. But you are not just in this place of worship. You are Lord of absolutely every area of our lives. As we go from this place, would you make your presence felt and known by your Holy Spirit, that we would live under your good and awesome and beautiful reign, that we would go proclaiming the gospel of salvation from sin in the name of Christ. And may we know and experience your joy everywhere we go, because you are unfailingly committed to us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.